You're going to hear a simple phrase as we come to verse 6 of Isaiah 9, and it's this, to us. And the to us is shocking because if you've been with us in Isaiah, the reality is this is the most undeserving people ever. These are God's own people who have rebelled and rejected Him and have turned away from Him, and yet the refrain of God's grace comes forward to us. A child is born to us. A son is given. We walked through about how the light had come into the land. And Matthew chapter 1, the, the gospel picks up and, and literally cites this, this word here from Isaiah chapter 9. And, and says the fulfillment of the light coming, of God's grace ultimately coming, is in the identity of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we come, we're going to hear that statement again. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. And what's going to happen with this child is it's going to bring something that seems so elusive. For some of you it may seem lifetimes away in this very moment. And it's one word, three simple letters, J-O-Y, joy. Pick up any wood, beginning in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to tackle several things. First, Ultimately, I want you to realize and understand that God is the true source of joy. God is the true source of joy. Look at what it says, beginning in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. So look what happens here. We have this increase of joy in the lives of God's people, right? And the question is, well, how does the nation multiply? How does the increase of joy happen in the lives of God's people? How does this take place? Well, notice what he says two times. He reiterates it so that we don't miss it. You have, you have. I want you today to rest in the fact that only God can bring true and everlasting joy. You may look for it in every other fountain, every other path. I don't know where you've gone, what stones you've overturned, seeking joy, what things you've tried to fill life with pleasure or whatever it may be. But I want you to recognize and see clearly that these people are misfits. They are undeserving and yet God brings joy to them. It is you have, you have. Remember from back in verse 1, it was these people who said that they were in the midst of gloom and great anguish. It says that they had found the way, in fact, that it was great sorrow as they walked in the midst of darkness. So today, I want to be careful if you hear this and you begin to turn the channel in your mind and thinking, you just don't understand, Blake. My life is too dark. My grief is too real. My shame, the anguish of my soul is too deep in what I'm walking through. I want to remind you that it's these people who also felt hopeless. It is these people who are in the midst of great darkness that God brought joy to them. Notice what he says. He says that they rejoice before you. That's the response. Look at there. They rejoice before you. I guess I should have brought it on over there before you. They're rejoicing before God. That's the response to God bringing joy to our lives. We respond with worship, responding back to Him for what He's done for us. That's what Ronald was sharing about what Christ has done for us on the cross. It, it, it beckons, it hearkens us to respond by worship with our lives. Not only merely our lips, but also our lives. They rejoice before you. Well, you'd say, well, how are they rejoicing he says it's twice there as. He makes two comparisons. First, he says it's as with joy at the harvest. This is like the ultimate payday for the people of God. 
And then further he says to them, it's as they are glad when they divide the spoil, as if they've won the great war. It's as if you've walked into the Super Bowl locker room and you are celebrating with this team. But this win is not a temporary that will just be tattooed to one year and there will be a new winner next year. This is a permanent and forever joy for the people of God because of what Christ will bring. So I think it's important for us to remember that in the midst of all of our failures, depression, shame, rebellion, that God is one. That His grace is greater, His love is forever, and His mercy is more. This morning we're going to fire up a video, and Miss Karen, if we get that ready, I think it's often a hard word to capture. What is joy? What is meant by the word joy? What's the Bible after? And I thought I could spend a few moments trying to talk through it. Um, I've struggled to sleep some this week. I don't know if any of you ever that. I've had a few nights where I woke up at 1 a.m. and just never went back to sleep. And so there's been a lot of just praying, thanking, reading, studying in the middle of the night. And uh, you, you can go ahead. It's, it's good. And this video here, it's about four minutes, but it looks at a big picture biblically of what is joy. I want you to think just spend some moments listening. Being in a good mood is really great. And most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. 
He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. Amen, amen. amen. Um, I hope that gives you maybe a little better of what we're after this morning when we're trying to define joy, this biblical, holistic view that joy is ultimately anchored in God's Son, Jesus. It doesn't deny our emotions, our feelings, our sorrow, our hurt, our fears, our confusion, all the things that we experience. It doesn't minimize those, but it gives us someone to bring them to and to see them in light of who He is. So let's look further in the text. This morning, rejoice. We're, we're talking about reasons why we might rejoice. And it's going to be interesting. Isaiah is going to give us three reasons why the people are going to rejoice. Why God is, what God is doing and bringing about this joy. And the first is this. Rejoice because there is no more enemy. Verse 4 of Isaiah 9. He says, again, you see these. These are key markers, right? So these are things we look for in the text. Four, right? So see that word, F-O-R, there, beginning of verse four. Four, this is the reason why the joy is coming. This is the reason why these people are rejoicing before God. Four, he says, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The word yoke, burden, shoulder, oppressor are all four words that are used throughout the Old Testament to define the time in Egyptian bondage. And this was people in the midst of 400 years of slavery that God brought out and delivered. And he's saying, I want you to know that there's another exodus coming. But this exodus isn't simply just delivering you out of a physical land into another land. This is bringing you into an eternal kingdom. This, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, is the reason why you must be born, what? Again. For no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. This kingdom, this exodus out of this life of sorrow and heartache and brokenness is bringing us into an eternal kingdom because of the Son of God. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know your enemies... The things that are happening now, he says, I want you to know it's temporary. Look further with me if you would. He knows he says there further in verse 4, he says, You have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian was back when God raised up a man by the name of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, look what he says here. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest, look what he says, here's why. Lest Israel do what? 
boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. He says, I want you to know that your joy is ultimately rooted in God's eternal glory. He says, I want you to know that, listen, you having joy and resting in me brings me eternal glory. So listen, I want you to be here today and hear the fact that you can rejoice, that there's a time coming of no more burdens, no more blows, no more oppression. This is yours in Christ. This is the identity for those who are in Christ. Unless today you hear this message and run out and think, this is three ways I need to have more joy or three steps to greater joy in my life. Remember simply this refrain, you have broken. This is the work of God, beloved. Rest in Him. Let His work be your joy. Next, the people of God are called to rejoice because there is no more war. God has not only removed their enemies, He's also removed war. Look what He says here further with me. Look at it again there in verse 5. This is your second four. So remember we had a four back here in verse 4. We heard that. Now this is the second one, verse 5. Four, He says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He says, I want you to know that these warriors' boots, these, these garments that were filled with blood because of all the war that's been across the earth, He says, I want you to know it's coming to an end. War is coming to an end. Now, for some of you, you know all too well the sound of the boots of warriors because you've experienced war. Things that many of us will never even have, could even imagine. For others of you, you've not maybe seen the battlefield itself, but you know what the sound of those boots walking down the hallway was. And it may have been a tyrant by the name of Dad. And he was coming to deliver another blow to you or to your brother or your sister. Or maybe it was that of the person that was coming in to abuse you or a sibling in the darks of night. I want you to hear and rest that that is going to come to an end. God has seen it. And He's going to bring it to an end. For some of you, when you hear even the idea of abuse of children and things Maybe it hasn't something you've experienced personally, but it just comes on your radar and a red streak flies up your back and up your neck and you say, I'd love to do something about it. I want to remind you today that there are many thousands of children that are in our foster care system because they experience that very thing. I'm not saying today that we can remedy every single situation, but you could for one. Today, this hour, this moment, I'm just begging you, just maybe just kindly pleading with you, would you be willing just to pray, God, what does it look like with fostering and adoption for me and my family? God is bringing about this great victory, beloved. But listen, we must realize that we too are called to be a part of that. And you're asking, so Blake, there's going to be no more enemy? And you're telling me there's going to be no more war forever? How? And listen to what happens here. Look, this is beautiful. This is where we can rejoice because Christ has come. Look what happens here. This is your third four. Look, right, so you had one in verse four. You had one in verse five. And now the climactic one comes in verse six. Four, he says, to us a child is born. To us a son is what? Given. Now, what's beautiful about this, look what he's showing us. He said there's going to be a child born. There's going to be a child that's going to have an earthly humanity. But there's also something unique about this child that is coming. This 
prophesied one in Isaiah 7, this Emmanuel, God with us, this virgin with child. There is something happening. Why? Because God is going to also give his son. This child will have both an earthly humanity, but also a heavenly deity. He is fully God and fully man met in the one man, Christ Jesus. He says, listen, I want you to know that he's coming. For some of you, God is calling you to adopt. And maybe you haven't heard that bell ring for the biological adoption yet. Or maybe you have, and God's just further moving that needle today, causing you to wonder and think, God, what child might you be desiring to give to me and my family? For some of you today, even you're not married yet, but maybe God is doing a work in your life like he was doing in Emily and I's prior to even marriage, where we began to recognize that adoption was just something that was stirring in our souls. There was something about the orphans and, and, and these children that were overlooked that God kept bringing about. Look what he says here. He says, I want you to know that how great this child is. This child, again, in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. And the government shall be what? Upon his shoulder. Now, what's beautiful about it is, if you remember back in verse 4, it says that he was going to remove the burden from their shoulders. How? By taking your burden from you. How is God going to remove the burdens from your life? By placing them upon His Son. He says, I want you to know that the government is going to be upon the shoulders. Some of you today, listen, you are trying to shoulder something that you cannot handle. I don't know if that's adoption or fostering or whatever. It may be just situations in your life, sickness, caring for aging parents. I don't know what it is for you, but you're trying to shoulder things that you cannot handle. I want to compel you. There is one that can handle all the government. Can he not also handle and shoulder what you're dealing with? He says, I want you to know that he's coming. And look who he is. We have four defining characteristics of who this one that is coming, this child, this son that is going to be given again to us. Don't move past that. I love that statement there. To us. This is a gift of God's grace. This isn't people that have earned or deserved it. Look what he says. His name shall be called, first he says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful indicates something of a supernatural. So we might say that we now have a supernatural counselor or one who provides supernatural counsel. Now this is significant. Why? Because I think oftentimes, if we're not careful, we run around with our notepad and pencils meaning well, but we prescribe verses to people or little scripture quotations at times and we just hand those off to people and say well go that'll fix it i want you to be reminded yes it's god's word but remember john 1 says that the word became flesh beloved they need more than just simply a scripture verse they need to know that scripture verse is alive and it is living in the name of jesus christ that the word of god according to hebrews 4 says it is living and active So listen, when we share the Scriptures, we must let them know the power and the authority behind those Scriptures. And it's the name of Christ. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the one that's going to be with them long after you're gone when you don't have the answer of how to respond to that co-worker or friend. It's the wonderful counselor, this supernatural God that will be with them, who will give them wisdom and knowledge. It is Christ Himself. Secondly, the Scripture says that He is indeed A mighty God, the word mighty indicates that he is a warrior, one who can indeed remove once and for all, all enemies and end all war. If you remember much about the story of Gideon, Gideon started with some 32,000 men and ended up with how many do you remember? 
300. From 32,000 to 300. And when the time came to fight, God gave them these marching orders. No weapons, just simply take in your hand a jar that has a light in it and the other hand a trumpet. 300 verse 135,000 people. 300 verse 135,000. I don't know what situation you're in life and what chances or odds it may seem, but my guess is 300 verse 135,000 is not really good. And it reminds, he says, listen, I want you guys to know that there's a mighty God coming that's greater than Gideon. There is a God coming who can end all wars, who can overcome all enemies. So no matter what you're up against today, remember that you have, <clears throat> that you serve a mighty God. God who is mighty to save. Thirdly, he defines him as the everlasting father. Don't overlook the fact that there is an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting God who has everlasting wisdom and who has everlasting strength. All of these things are going again to meet in the one God-man, the Son that is going to be given, Jesus Christ. The word Father is used throughout scriptures often to indicate that there's something happening, God's nature that He is doing for helpless people. People like the, the Israelites in the midst of Egyptian bondage for 400 years. God being father is a reminder of what he did with Gideon and 300 men versus 135,000. That in one night, the angel of the Lord went out and put 120,000 of them to death as they turned on one another. It's also a reminder that the people of Isaiah's day were helpless and walking in darkness. And yet this everlasting father, this God of hope, was going to step in to their darkness. And so might it be just a silent whisper to you today in the midst of darkness that there is a God who loves the helpless? Who Scripture calls an everlasting Father? Psalm 68 and 5 records these words simply saying that God is a Father to the what? Fatherless. He is a defender of widows is God in His holy dwelling. And I want to ask you, if God is a father to the fatherless, if God is indeed a defender of widows, should we not, as God's people who have been adopted by Him, also desire to be fathers and mothers to the fatherless and the motherless? Should we not also be a defender of widows and those in our culture and our community who are being overlooked and stepped on and trod upon? Should we not today have some right response to God being the everlasting Father? I believe the Scripture hearkens us and it beckons us forward to respond to who our God is. Fourthly, He is called the Prince of Peace. It was in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that a woman by the name of Hannah was without children. And she had gone through much according to her own testimony. And the Scripture records in verse 16 that she had been in much great anxiety and fear. And yet, verse 17, Eli the priest will tell her to go in peace, for God has heard you. Here is God, the everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, stepping into the midst of a barren womb and bringing forth what they could never do on their own. The Prince of Peace stepping in, doing what only God can do. 
For some of you, listen, God knows the needs and the desires of your heart. And for some of you, that may be children. I don't know how God may answer that. It may be biologically. It may be through fostering, through adopting. I don't know. For others of you, listen, you are going through great seasons of trial. Know that there is a God who is the Prince of Peace, who knows exactly what you need. Would you come to Him today? Notice what He says here further, verse 7. Of the increase, again we have this reiteration of the government, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. During my late nights of not sleeping, I was reminded of the number of headlines that have hit us literally in many of these in the last week. There is the work in Turkey of their victorious election that he now has unprecedented power. If you think that not to be significant, be reminded that Turkey is the ancient Asia, Asia Minor, which is where all seven letters are written to the churches of Revelation. We ought not to be blind to the things that are happening. With the number of immigrant children and all the things that are happening there, public views on immigration and the, the great discourse that is happening there and the divide in our country, Let's not be reminded of the number of tariffs that are happening on our goods and services that are chipped and also those that are brought in. As we saw with Canada, they will not back down. Let us not forget that we live in the midst of a culture where transgender and identity and sexuality and everything are in flux. Let us not be reminded of just in this recent headlines of a conservative state like Oklahoma legalizing medical or medicinal use of marijuana. Let us not recognize or miss the fact that we are desperate, let's see here, in desperate need of a God who can bring to a government a peace that there will be no end. Beloved, we are clamoring in our culture today, who will be that someone? And here's what I was reminded of on my way home from vacation. I don't know if you've ever experienced it or maybe you're like me and you've been guilty of this before. Seen a cop on the side of the road with the radar out and you tap the old brakes just long enough to get past, and what do you most likely do? You speed right back up again. That's my fear as I saw that and saw so many cars hitting their brake lights, and just full disclosure, I was one of them. <clears throat> Sorry, Reverend, I know. Um, my fear is that some of you will do that. That Sunday is simply a time to hit your brakes for a moment. But as soon as this service wraps up, you'll close the Scriptures and speed right back out to life. I want to remind you, beloved, that there is a God who has come to bring an eternal peace. A peace that will never end. But I want to warn you today that if you reject this offer of salvation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 warns that God will raise up a great delusion. He will raise up one who those who have repudiated Christ will look to as the answer who will bring peace to the world. This utopia that we're after. All the while leading them not to God and His throne, but away from God into the very depths of hell. Be warned this morning if today is simply a time when you tap your brakes and move forward. There is a God who can bring forever peace and it's only in the name of Jesus. All of this sounds as if it's impossible. Maybe some of you have that epithet that you've attached to the word adoption or fostering. That's impossible or not for us or just too much. That's for others. 
Be reminded of what all of this also seems. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, a government and peace that will never end. All of this sounds too good to be true. All of this sounds impossible. And indeed, you would be right unless you come to verse 7 where it ends with this affirmation. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then this echo refrain. The zeal of who? The Lord of hosts will what? Will do this. No one else can do it. No one else can bring peace into your life. Not eternal peace. No one else can bring joy in the midst of great anguish and sorrow and gloom and walking and living in darkness. There is only one who can free you from that. There is only one who can bring forever peace, beloved. They're not on the election ballot. His name is Jesus Christ. And the only way this will happen is by the Lord of hosts doing it. I compel you and remind you that you will not experience this kingdom apart from repentance and faith in Christ. Here's but one way into this eternal kingdom of peace forever, of unending joy, and it is through God's only Son. For the Apostle Paul would tell us in Romans 5 and 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way into this eternal peace. It's through the name of Jesus. I want to close this morning with a word of challenge and a word of encouragement. The word of challenge is the reminder to us if today we have experienced joy and excitement and rejoicing because we realize that in Christ this is our forever identity. That it's brought hope and rightfully so. But I want to remind you for the many, many who don't know this joy and peace, we must take the gospel to them. And in reminder of what we're thinking about today, as we look or shine the light on adoption and fostering, it is a reminder to us today that we cannot close our ears or stop our eyes to the number of children who do not know and experience the hope and the grace and the goodness of God that has come to many of you and your families. I challenge you today to not pump your brakes and then move forward. Today, would you stop and simply utter this prayer? Lord, not my will or our will, but what? Thy will be done. I also want to close the word of encouragement. For some of you, God has maybe been stirring your heart for some time toward adoption, toward fostering, toward child sponsorship. I don't know what it is, and it may very well seem like an impossible task. Where will the money come from? Are we even able to adopt? How will our family react? I'm sure the questions go on and on. Concerns pile up and pile up and pile up again. I want to just simply remind you the same thing that seemed impossible in Isaiah's day. The one thing that was going to accomplish what is impossible is the God of the impossible. And he is the one that declares the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Today, I compel you just to rest in him. And say, God, I don't know where this leads. I can't figure out every answer to every question. I can't answer every concern. I don't know where the money will come from. I don't know all the answers. But I know that you are a God of the impossible. And if you are leading and calling us to do this, then may the zeal of the Lord Almighty do it.
Beloved, if the Lord has called you to it, He will be faithful to bring you through it. Today, do you know the Prince of Peace, the everlasting God, the mighty warrior God? All of this was to a people that were undeserving. To us, man, don't get past that. To us, a people in rebellion and just that were pushing God far away. To them, the grace of God came. You haven't earned or deserved it. You haven't been good enough to keep it. It is just the love and the grace of God towards you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Today, will you repent, acknowledging that your way of life has not brought the joy and peace that you were after? Acknowledging that your way of life was against the Holy God, and yet His love, He sent His Son for you. Would you place your faith and trust in the name of Jesus as your only hope of salvation? Would you pray with me, Father? I thank you, God, for... um, that you have sent your son. Thank you that you would send your son to a people like the people of Isaiah's day. You would send your son to the people in Egyptian bondage. You would rescue God's people. 300 verse 135,000 the day of Gideon. God, I know that there is great hopelessness in this room. There is great despair. There is sorrow for so many things that I can't even begin to imagine. Yet, Lord, I know that you are the only answer. And so, Father, I pray today that they would come unto you. Father, for those who hear these words and say, I would love to be a part of that kingdom. Father, may you remind them of their need to bow their heart and lives and to confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God, draw them unto you. Let this stir in their souls. May you, God, you have brought joy. Therefore, the people rejoice before you. Father, may you be our joy. And may we respond by rejoicing before you. I love you, Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask you to stand and sing with us this morning. If you'd love to talk, pray. Myself, Brother Todd, others will be here.